when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, do I need this? I might as well stop. Do I need this? Am I on? Am I on now? It's on me, bro. I didn't turn it on. I turned it off. Sorry. <laughs> Happy Father's Day, Omar. Let's try that again. God's Word deserves our attention. Let's try that again. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, and he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is God's word. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's go before the Lord and ask Him for grace as we take a look at this passage together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that Your Spirit would be at work in us, in every person in this room, applying these words to our hearts. Teach us. Change us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Here we go again. The conflict continues. Who's up next? The Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? These guys were devoted to the law in the most intense way. They were the moral police of the time. They held an unrivaled status and influence among the people. Very influential, very learned, very skilled in matters of the Old Testament law. And so the Pharisees come and they gather together and they send the best of the best among them. They send what the text says, a lawyer. This is an expert in the law. Right? It's not just someone that knows things about the law. May, maybe over time has come to know certain aspects of the law. No, these were the experts of the law. They were the top dogs. They got it. They understood it. They were the ones looked to to interpret and apply the law. This was the teacher of the teachers of the law. Does that make sense to you? Right? It's one thing to hire your buddy to help you with a little electrical work around the house. Right? Somebody who knows what to do, what not to do in general, won't blow up your place. Right? And then there's other people called certified electricians that actually are certified in the details of what it means to be an electrician. Now imagine the people who teach the certification classes about how to become certified as an electrician. That's who they sent. They sent a lawyer of the Pharisees, an expert, 
a teacher of the teachers, a trainer of the trainers in the law. And so the Pharisees send their, 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 uh, their, the best of the best, right? Top gun for the lawyers, right? I did see the movie Friday. That was free of charge. Top gun, the teachers of the law. And what do they do? They're going to ask him a question. But once again, Matthew clues us in on why they're asking him a question. Don't miss that. Right? They're not just curious. We've seen this time and time again. These guys who are coming and asking Jesus questions, they're not just wanting to learn a little more, wanting to gain a different perspective. They're not interested in a conversation, in a dialogue. No. The purpose, Matthew tells us, is they come to ask him a question in order to test him, to set a trap, right? That's what the religious leaders are doing. They want to trap Jesus. To be more clear, they want to find a way to discredit Jesus, right? Because the people are listening, and he's gaining prominence and influence. And that is a threat to the Pharisees, his teaching, his ministry. So they want to discredit him. And so they ask him a question. They come to him. The text tells us one of them, a lawyer, asks him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? What's the greatest commandment? Tell us, Jesus. Instruct us, Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law. There are traditionally understood to be 613 laws in the Old Testament. Six, one, three. Okay? 613. If you divide them in two ways, like negative and positive, 365 of those laws say something like this. You shall not. Negative. Don't do this. 248, if the math is right, you check it. 248 of those laws say something like this. You shall. Positive. 365, 248, 613. Some of you are really slow at math. 613. 613 laws. Of all those 613, the you shall nots and the you shalls, which one of those rises to the surface as the most prominent? As the one that stands tallest? As the one that carries the most weight? You tracking? That's what they're asking Jesus. Which one ranks number one among all the rest of those commands? You could say this. If you dig below the surface of this kind of question, they're asking Jesus, what is the supreme obligation of our life? You ever think about that? What is the supreme obligation in our life from God's perspective? What is the supreme obligation of our life? What's the weightiest command? What's number one, Jesus, of all the law? What's number one? 
And Jesus answers very simply, very directly, with great clarity. He says this. He said to him, verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. He tells him. And in this answer, he's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Right there embedded in this section called the Shema, which means to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This was the Shema. Very important in the life of the, of the Jew. The role of the Shema cannot be minimized. It was recited daily, twice, for those who were a part of Israel. It's very important. It functioned in many ways like a pledge of allegiance for them in the history of their nation. If you remember back to Deuteronomy and Moses communicating this, they're on the cusp of entering the promised land. Now here, in this moment, on the cusp of a major work in redemptive history, Jesus is reinforcing the centrality of this command in their lives. You shall love the Lord your God. This is the first and the greatest commandment. This is the supreme obligation of your life. Love the Lord your God with all that you are. He goes on to explain that by emphasizing these words. Love Him with all your heart. The center of of your will, of your emotional life, right? Proverbs talks about guarding our heart. Why? For from it, from it flow the... It, what is, oh, I'm just going to read it. I can't remember. <laughs> For from it flows the wellspring of life. It's our heart. It's who we are. It's the center of our being. We're to love Him with all of our heart. He goes on to say to love with all your soul. Just way to just describe our life as a whole. Who we are, again. With all our mind, our mental, and our thinking capacity. Love the Lord with all of your mind. And Luke and Mark, in their versions of this account, add with all of your strength. That capacity that we have for vigorous effort, both bodily and mentally, with all your strength. Summary, love the Lord your God with all that you are. Every part of you is to love the Lord your God. That's the first and greatest commandment. That is the supreme obligation of our life. These are overlapping categories, heart, soul, mind, strength. But really, they describe all of us. There's not one part of us, not one ounce of us 
that is not called and required to love God with all of it. That's what he says. John Piper says, when, when Jesus demands that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, he means that every faculty and every capacity of our being should express the fullness of our affection for God. The fullness of all the ways that we treasure Him. The fullness of all of our affections for God. That's what Jesus is saying is the first and greatest commandment. I think it's super important, even as we emphasize this, to again be reminded of who is being called to love. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, right? They're hearing this command. You consider their history as a people, just where they were and where they came from, and how God redeemed them out of Egypt. Even as they heard this high call, this supreme obligation to love the Lord, don't miss out that they were already a people dearly loved by the Lord. I don't want you to miss that. That's super important to hear this high calling from the Lord Jesus about loving the Lord with all that you are. Because these people had already received all of God's love in the redemption out of Egypt. Even look at Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. Listen to what Moses goes on to tell these people that are called to love the Lord their God. Listen to what he says. It was not because you were more in number than any other people, than any other people, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The people that are called to love the Lord their God are a people who have been loved by the Lord their God. God loved them. The Lord loved them. Not because they were great and because they deserved his love, but because the Lord chose to set his affection and his love on them and keep his promises that he made to them. The Lord loved them. And now, the appropriate response is to love this God in return. Amen? Please, do not hear this command apart from receiving the grace of being loved dearly by the Lord. Now, they respond. They respond to love them. And having received love from God, that's what we do. We now respond in love for God. Hear these incredible promises right from the Scriptures about the love of God for you who trust in Christ. Listen to this. For as high as the heavens 
are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. Ephesians 2.4 But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Him. By grace, you have been saved. 1 John 3.1 See how great or what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. You are dearly loved by the Father in Jesus Christ. And so hear this call to love the Lord your God in light of that love that He already has set upon you. If you're here today and you've never heard of this God, a God that loves undeserved sinners, hear this today, that that is exactly the God of the Bible. That's who He is. That's how He treats those He chooses and sets His affection on. He does so in gracious, undeserved love. And He pours it out infinitely and perfectly in Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection. Your Creator sees your state. And He does all that He can in love to redeem you out of sin and draw you back into relationship with Him. And it's all on the basis of His love for you. So the call to love Him in return with all that you are is indeed a response to the great love that He has given to you. If you're here today and you've never heard of that, please hear it clearly. God loves you in Christ Jesus. Turn to Him. Receive His love. Rest in His love. Receive a love that is in, unlike any other in this world. A love from your Creator and your Redeemer. I don't know about you, but it was the simplicity of that message, that, that shocking, scandalous message that I heard at the age of 8, 9, and 10, those formative years, when I was wondering and asking questions about who am I? Does anybody love me? And what purpose is there in this life? Maybe you're here today and you're asking those kinds of questions regardless of your age. Who am I? Does anybody love me? What purpose is there in this life? And it was the preaching of the gospel, the good news about a God that loved me in Christ, that loved me even in the midst of my sin, even in the midst of my brokenness and confusion that drew me. What draws us to the Father is His love in Christ. What propels me to live a life of love with all that I am, ever so imperfectly, is the love that He has for me. Do you hear that today? Are you living with an awareness of the love of God? Believer, you who've trusted Christ for years, have you forgotten what life is all about? It's simple. It's responding to the love of God with a love for God. Receiving love and reciprocating that love in return in worship and adoration and obedience. 
you living in the awareness of the love of God for you? Are you thinking that, oh, he's disappointed in you and you're living in shame and condemnation because your works and your deeds do not add up and there's no possible way that even after all these years of trusting Jesus and all the struggles and the failures, that there's no way that the love of God would remain for you, that something must have separated you from the love of God, please be reminded of the gospel today. He loves you in Christ, and nothing can separate you from that love. And now you're able and empowered and free to simply love Him in return with all that you are. Would you be reminded today? Would our love for God be rekindled? Has it grown cold, as Jesus says in Matthew 24, because of the wickedness and evil of men? Don't let your love grow cold. May the Spirit of God awaken a deep affection and love for Him. And may your life be characterized by love for God with all that you are. That is my prayer for you today, that you're renewed in your love for God, that you have a renewed affection, that you repent of your idolatry, all these false gods that we run to and love and stare at and have affection for and seek pleasure and peace and assurance in that always let us down. There's nothing sweeter than the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's turn away from these things in the world and turn to the source of true love and love Him with all that we are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Ask the Father today, depend on the Spirit for renewed affection because the supreme obligation of the Christian life is loving Him with all that we are. Amen? But Jesus isn't done. He not only answers the question, this is the first greatest commandment, but he expands upon it. Look at what he says. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Leviticus 19.18 where he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. They understood this neighbor to be a fellow Israelite, right? They understood in the context of, Luke, uh, of Leviticus 19 that they were to love the sojourner and the foreigner among them. And yet we know Luke 10 expands as the question is asked, Who's my neighbor? We understand that Jesus teaches that our neighbor is anyone in whom we come into contact with and interact with anyone that's found to be in need. Jesus says, a second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's important to note his words here. A second is like it. He's not, he, he, he's not saying... A second is it, as if to equate love for God with love for neighbor. It's not equal, right? It's related, these two commands, but it's not equated. It's very important. 
It's important to note that we express our love for God in worship. We're said to love our neighbor. We're not called to worship our neighbor. So, same word, love God, love neighbor, related, not equated. We worship God, first and foremost, amen? We love God, first and foremost. But there's a command like it. Loving our neighbor. That's expressing our love for God in serving the needs of others. Caring for the lives of others. Second is like it. Love for neighbor is a response also to receiving God's love. Let's not miss that, right? What's, how's it related? Well, one is foundational to the other. To truly love neighbor is built on the foundation of having a true love for God. Is built on the foundation of having been loved by God. You receive God's love. You respond to God's love by loving Him. And then you express that love for God in loving your neighbor as yourself. It's related. It's connected. 1 John 14 tells us this head on. We love, why? Because He first loved us. And the whole context of 1 John 4 is loving neighbor. Loving neighbor. Not because they love us, but because God loved us. Isn't that fascinating? It's easy to love people that love us, right? It's, we get give and take. Naturally speaking, it's hard to think, I'm going to love someone because somebody else loved me. What if those people mistreat me? What if they hurt me? What if they don't deserve my love? Newsflash, they don't. They don't deserve your love. But that's not the point. The point is, is that we love others because God first loved us. It's radical. When we're loved by God, we're empowered and inspired and motivated to not just love Him in return, but to love others as an expression of that love. How else is it related? Well, one is a necessary consequence of the other. Even he goes on to say, 1 John, you say you love God, but you don't love your neighbor, you hate your brother, you're a liar. You're a liar. You're a hypocrite. You're saying you love God, but you don't express that love with a genuine care and concern and love for others around you. Love for neighbor is a response to receiving God's love. One thing that I always appreciated about Piper, his book, Desiring God. He has a whole chapter on love. I commend it to you. He talks about love is, as being the overflow. Loving others, I should say. Loving others is the overflow 
of the love we have received from God. Meaning, imagine a cup and God abundantly. And you read the epistles, you understand the work of Jesus, you understand that, that this us being the cup, this abundant pouring out and provision of God's love into our life. So much love that, it's, that it overflows. It fills us and overflows. That's what loving others really is. It's God pouring His love into us and it overflowing into the lives of others. In many ways, truly receiving because of the nature and the scope of His provision. It's so abundant and so much that when He pours it into our life, it inevitably, it consequently pours out into the lives of other people. In some ways, you understand the opportunity that each of you has to be an instrument of divine love in somebody else's life. For you to make yourself available and say, pour your love into my life to the extent that it overflows. Your love overflows into the lives of others. Reassure people of your love for them through my words, through my actions, through my decisions. It's the overflow. And yet herein lies our struggle. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. But the reality is, is that we love ourselves more than our neighbors. I don't know about you, but one of the sins that I'm confronted with constantly is my selfishness. Anybody else with me? My preferences. I think we did okay with this graduation party. Conflict level minimal. But it's interesting where my mind had to go. Like even during the week, I'm like, babe, I'm preaching a loving neighbor, so I got to live this out. But I don't want to do it this way. <laughs> right? Like that's a silly. This is how I want to do it. This is how we should do it. Every encounter is a crossroads of will I demand my will? Or will I submit and serve? It's a, it's a microcosm of my most difficult struggle. To not demand my own preferences in my marriage, in this church. Like One of the deepest struggles as a pastor in caring for people is just growing cold and selfish. Right? You, 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 you definitely have a sense where you're giving up evenings and conversations and phone calls and just relaxing drives in the car can become counseling sessions on the phone, right? You, and you can, you can feel like, I don't want to do this sometimes. I'd rather do something else. I'd rather do something that I like or ever, like that sinful part of you just kind of wells up inside. And as I interact with in 20 years of ministry, interact with people, whether it's a marriage struggle or a financial situation or a big life decision 
or just this inner turmoil that people feel. There's a sense where oftentimes the, the, the summary struggle is, this life is all about me. And I'm disappointed and frustrated and I'm wrestling because as far as I can tell, God is not making life work out as far as I want and in order the order and the timing in the manner in which I want to experience it. As if God were there to serve you. If God were a means to some other end and other people as well, they're great as long as they help you get what you want and get where you want to go. Am I the only one with struggles with selfishness? Is this just me? I don't think so. This is a core issue for us. This is a major point of sanctification. And when it comes to loving others, it's hard and it's difficult because, to be quite honest, we love ourselves more than them. And that's the a main struggle of the human heart. But then again, we're confronted with the love of God. It's the selflessness of Christ. It's coming face to face with Jesus, the suffering servant, who in his death loves God, loves neighbor in total perfection and grants that kind of love in service to us. We love because he first loved us. We serve because he first served us. We care because he first cared for us. There's something about the cross of Jesus that turns the tables on love, that turns the tables on our affection, that enables and empowers us to repent of our selfishness that motivates us to consider our spouse more than ourselves. that motivates us to live and, and work in a relationship with our coworker that makes them look really good to the boss rather than stepping on their back to the top. There's something about helping out a, a neighbor with a household chore or even so many people that helped us on a Saturday with that party yesterday. There's something about Jesus, His love, His example, His finished work that turns the tables on our desires. It's the love of God that gives us the ability to repent of selfishness. Respond to God's love by first loving God and then, second, by loving others in their need. And let's be honest about our selfishness. Let's ask God to give us the grace that we need to become more like Jesus, to serve and suffer for the sake of others. These are the two commands. And I'll wrap this up by just pointing out the reason these two commands come together and are central. He tells us, verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Wow. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. 
you could take all those commandments and in some way, shape, or form, put them in the buckets or categorize them as either loving God or loving neighbor. Even think about the Ten Commandments. The first four, love God. The final six, love neighbor. He's saying that loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving neighbor as yourself, he's like, on those two commandments, all the prophets and the law hang. It's like a closet rod, right? Where all the, all the clothes hang on them. Right? Think of the hangers. Some of your closets are on the floor. I get it. But let's pretend we're organized. By color, size, right? Shirt, all of them folded the right way. You got the, the collar in the right direction. All those shirts, right? Hang on the rod. If there's no rod, they fall. He's saying all the law and the prophets, they hang on that. Without them, it falls. He's saying... Like the picture on the wall, the nail, right? Love is like the nail that the law and the prophets hang on. They depend on them. D.A. Carson says the entire biblical revelation demands heart religion. Marked by total allegiance to God, loving Him, and loving one's neighbor. As Paul says, love is the fulfillment of the law. Amen? So respond to God's love today. That's what we're asking you to do. That's the great provision that enables obedience to the great commandment. Respond to God's love today by first loving God with all that you are. And second, by loving others in their need. You say, well, where's the application? This is the best I got for you. You ready? It's in everything. What about my marriage? Love God, love neighbor. What about work? Love God, love neighbor. What about my relationships? What about the decisions I make? What about my resources? What about my talents? My gifts? What about my past, present, future? What about my destiny? This is everything. These commandments are everything. They sum up everything. They're applied to everything. There's nothing outside of this. This is what God calls us to in response to His love for us. Love Him with all we are. And love others in their need. That's everything. But does it apply to everything? And I got thinking. Maybe I'm halfway home. Some of you think, I hope he doesn't live to he's 86. Maybe I'm halfway there. But as I get older, destiny, future matters more and more. The present, less. Right? Like, you start thinking about the future. And I wonder, like, what will, 
How will people summarize my life? This is a summary of the whole Bible. Love God, love neighbor. How will people summarize my life and the years the Lord gives me? You think of your epitaph, right? Is that how you say it? Epitaph? Epitaph. What's written on your tombstone to describe your life? What will it say? Man, I pray the Lord enables that these two simple, short phrases characterize my life. You love God, you love neighbor. Is that your hope? Is that who you are because you receive the love of God? Is that how you live? I wonder, we're good at engineering a course to where we want to go. The things we want. Money, accomplishment. What do we want to be remembered for in this life? When our kids say goodbye and put us in the grave, what would they remember us as? Someone who loved God and loved neighbor? Or, wow, he, he had a lot of rental properties. He scored a lot of points in high school, and then nobody cared anymore. That was a joke on me. What are they going to say? Pray it's love God, love neighbor. We need a lot of growth here, don't we? A lot of growth. I'm going to conclude with a prayer from Ephesians 3 for us all as we seek God's grace to grow in loving Him and others. Let's pray together. Our Father, for this reason, we bow our knees and we come before You, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of Your glory, You may grant us to be strengthened with power through Your Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God, Now to you who are able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, and all God's people said, Amen.